I was given a brief as a junior barrister as acting for some commandos who were charged with serious war crimes-related offences. Obviously, that's something that a lot of Special Forces veterans are sitting around waiting to start that process, and it's not easy. And I watched them go through that, and you feel like you're on your own. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Keith Wallahan is a former commando a veteran of three tours of Afghanistan. He's also a lawyer and a barrister and has now been pre-selected for the federal seat of Menzies for the Liberal Party. He spoke with Angus Horden in Sydney. I'm Angus Horden in our studio today speaking with Keith Wallahan. Keith, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you for having me, Angus. It's a real pleasure to be here. Keith, you were born in Dublin in 1977 and then moved to Australia in 1988. Can you tell us about that journey? For me as a 10-year-old and two younger brothers, it was a really exciting journey. In hindsight, we left a recession in Ireland and landed in Australia just in time for a recession here. So those two economic incidents have become a part of my life. But it was really a wonderful thing. I didn't appreciate how hard it was on my parents and particularly my mum, but, but I get that now. Is there any military history in your family? Very little. uh, For those who are well-read in in Irish history, there's there's no formations that have come from Ireland in the the Great Wars, but lots of individuals did, and and people are writing books and recording that oral history like you do here, and that's important. But in our family, the one that I know of is my uncle. He fought in the Vietnam War for the U.S. Navy, and back then Irish people could join the U.S. Navy, and he ended up on Bob Hope's security detail for one of his tours. So um, uh, it's been fun chatting to him about that. So what drew your interest initially into the military? Primarily a sense of curiosity. I was at orientation week at Melbourne University. And for those who have been to university, there's just all these different tents and clubs. Down the back of the quadrangle was this dark green tent. And I just wanted to know what was inside it. And I never would have guessed that I'd end up doing what I did. But curiosity primarily. But second to that would be a sense of service. And Australia has been very good to me and my family. And I couldn't think of a better way to give back than to do that. So your initial work with the Army was via the Reserves back in 1996? That's correct. So I signed up in first year university. And which unit did you join? Uh, The first unit was Melbourne University Regiment, which is um, just off campus at Melbourne Uni, off Ligon Street. So it's just near that part of Carlton. And just a normal infantry unit? It is. It's got a very proud history. Um, I think Robert Menzies briefly went there and, and some many other Victorians have gone through Melbourne University Regiment, but it's um, primarily an infantry unit, but its primary role is officer training. So a bit like the Sydney University Regiment we have up here. Very similar. 
So when did you migrate from the Melbourne unit into the commando regiment? That was in the early 2000s. My first posting was as a reserve infantry platoon commander in Geelong, but I lived in Ringwood, the other side of Melbourne. So I was trekking several hours through Melbourne down to Geelong, which I was more than happy to do. But I'd heard about this place called Commandos. And again, a sense of curiosity drove me to see if I could. The primary attraction was a sense of curiosity. I had met people who were commandos and had been in SAS. And I really looked up to them. They were humble, professional people that I wanted to be like and to see if I could do it. There was only one way to find out. So this is two commando in Melbourne. I had, by coincidence, joined one commando in Sydney. And it was a reserve unit, and I'm assuming yours was similarly a reserve unit at the time? It is. It was then and is now still sort of an integrated unit. There's a lot of full-time staff that, that go through two companies. What I remember the most about the commandos in particular was the training. Tell us about your experience with training in those runs and all the arduous uh, experiences that you had. Well, by the time I put my hand up for RAR, which was the predecessor to two commando regiment, was up and running and quite mature. So all of the selection and training was really run through them and the Special Forces Training Centre. So I went straight from the Reserve Infantry Unit onto the Commander Selection Course, and I was the only Reserve Officer on it. There were several full-time officers. That was quite a big wake-up call for me to get thrown into that environment and then continue a lot of the courses that they ran. So how long did the training go for? The training was broken up for me. So I did, I think it was a three and a half, four-week selection course. And then after that, several iterations of courses. Some of them were run by one commander regiment, some two commander regiment or four RAR, and then some by Special Forces Training Centre. And then as they added courses to the reinforcement cycle, we ended up catching up on others like close quarter battle and other courses much later and before we went to Afghanistan in especially 2009. Are there any special memories from the training days? Any funny experiences? It was interesting hearing other people speak about their memories of selection and it is brutally hard and it certainly was I remember on selection course, sitting there that the OIC of the selection course was a major, Hans Fleer, who is probably responsible for selecting a whole generation of officers in commandos. And he very sadly passed away quite young, but he was a really powerful person that meant a lot on that course. And when he came down from the mountain to speak to us, particularly the officers, he took the selection of officers very seriously. And he is my memory of selection more than anything, more than the pain or all the other tests. Is it what he would say to you or what you would have to do under his direction? What stuck in my mind was his emphasis on leadership and character. One thing he did that I'd sort of blocked out until quite recently where he had the officers after we'd had many days of no sleep and no food put in a room and he gave some scenarios to us. And one of them was a protracted conflict, a Vietnam type conflict where some of your soldiers have done the wrong thing and it did virgin war crimes. And he went around the room asking, what would you do? And we had a mission to achieve, but also this ethical dilemma that was before us. And at the time, I thought it was just another test. But given everything that's come out of the Brereton report, you look back and you say, well, there was a person who had done two tours of Vietnam in special forces and had a sense of some of the things officers have to deal with and soldiers have to deal with in a long conflict like that. A bit of deja vu for you, but we'll come back to that later. Do you remember how you felt when September 11 happened and you saw those planes hitting the Twin Towers? Vividly. I was at two company in Williamstown and Melbourne. We were running a course and someone, being from Melbourne, everyone's interested in the AFL, so someone turned on Channel 10 to see if, I think it was Matthew Lloyd from Essendon had been given a particular penalty. And Sandra Sully from Channel 10 then broke 
the first Australian network broke to New York and we just stayed watching all night and it, everything was different from the next day. So how do you feel that um, your military experience then changed as a result from that? I think it became more serious, not just within commandos, but all across the Australian military. We, we realised Australian lives were at risk and there was a role to play, uh, not just in Afghanistan, but in domestic security as well. And it did lead to a significant change in the training and roles for commandos. I suppose you were sort of in the right place at the right time in the sense that you transferred from reserves to full-time you're with the crack unit, this serious world event has happened and defence policy is all now being reshaped and you're actually right in that spot at that time. You continue with your work and then you're promoted into being captain back in 2004. I went back to being a reservist, so I was one of the reserve commando officers in two company, but we did several periods of full-time services for all of the deployments and I think I had about seven periods of full-time service four of which were for deployments. Timor, six months, three tours of Afghanistan. You would often do other things, courses and exercise on your reserve days. The average reservist in commandos does about 100 days a year or more. So it's just a different payment system. For instance, I went to South Korea on an exercise on my reserve time. From the civilian career, you're simultaneously, as you said, in the commandos, but you're also working. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't have the score required straight out of high school. It was close, but not quite there. So I went and did economics and politics at Melbourne University and then swapped into law at Monash University. And I always wanted to be a barrister. So one of the things I did quite early on in law school was mooting, which is, for those who don't know, it's like debating, but for lawyers. And I really enjoyed it. I was good at it. We won the competition in our first few weeks of law school. And people said, well, if you enjoy that, you enjoy being a barrister. So I always had that as something I wanted to do. So Keith, your first deployment is to Timor in 2007. It was. And uh, by then I was wondering whether I would ever get to deploy and had sort of given up on the idea that it would happen. I was in Marimbula and got a call from the OC who said, uh, if you want to go, you've got a week. So I jumped in the car and raced back to Melbourne uh, under the speed limit. And uh, I was in Timor within a, a week. And uh, I remember the person I was replacing as the special operations liaison officer, he said, oh, what took you so long? <laughs> and I was like, well, I did this pretty quick to get here, but um, I was so glad to be there. That, that was a really fun tour. So you're posting to Timor, that's with commandos. What was the mission up there? In about 2006, Timor erupted again, not quite on the level of what happened in 1999. But it involved a deployment of commandos to East Timor to help quell things. But in 2007, a man called Alfredo Renato decided with his band of merry men to steal some weapons and try and start what might have been a coup. So a task group was sent over, comprised of an SAS squadron and a commando company, and it was an apprehension task group. And it's quite an, a significant thing that happened. Within 24 hours, we had helicopters and SAS and commando assets deployed for a raid that was conducted so quickly. And how did the raid go? It didn't have the tactical outcome required, so they didn't capture Alfredo Renato. He went through the cordon, and then there was a series of follow-on missions to try and capture him. Eventually, he was cornered, but politics got in the way, and a negotiation was settled for him to hand himself in, and that's when the task group withdrew. But my role was I was the liaison officer with the infantry battle group. So I was back in Dili providing that liaison for the commander. So let's talk about your three combat tours to Afghanistan. The first one starts in 2008. All of the trips that I made to Afghanistan were different, all of them challenging and rewarding in their own way. And each of them 
helped make me better at the job that I did in the other ones. So the first one was a staff role. I was the operations officer of rotation six of the special operations task group. It was six months in the headquarters in Kandahar. And the primary task I had was to help get missions approved with the chain of command in NATO in regional command south, but also to help run current operations. So we had a whole staff in the headquarters, including a fighter pilot and a helicopter pilot and watch keepers and intelligence staff. And uh, we were really helping commanding officer lead the whole task group and then doing all of the work required around that. A lot of people have said that when they first touch down in Afghanistan, there's a smell. I think that's right. That doesn't stick in my mind. Uh, it's more just the haze of the dust and, uh, and other things. I think it was getting dark by the time I first touched down. But I do remember when the C-130 banked over Afghanistan and you looked down and saw it, it just gave you a sense of perspective about what might be happening down there. Keith, let's um, take you into the operations room. So what sort of shifts are you doing? How long are you rostered on? It was just me as the operations officer. So either I was there or I was asleep. I generally did about 16-hour days, seven days a week. It was a long... Very intense. It was. Not physically intense, yeah. but, but mentally demanding, but highly rewarding. I, you know, I had a team of people. We, we all got along well together and we worked well together. And there was no break, no days off. But, but that's we were happy to do it because we knew... The work we were doing was supporting people on the ground, out in the field, risking their lives. And equally, this is the first time you've, you've done all this training. This is the first time you actually get to do the real thing, and it really counts. That's right. And, and I wanted to step up and prove that I could do it. And so doing a good job was really important to me and my unit. I wanted to show that we could value add to this mission and this deployment. I think you always remember anyone who lost their life and two soldiers lost their lives on that tour. So Jason Marks and then Signal Sean McCarthy, he, he actually died on my very last day. Those two days, I, I wasn't out in the field with them, but just when you heard those words over the radio, um, it just has a chilling effect on you that you never forget. And obviously, you spin up all of the reports and get things ready. And I remember looking at the reports and feeling this sense of guilt that I knew this about them before their family did. And you knew that process was starting where someone would knock on their door. And I think for the case of Sean McCarthy, I think his family, uh, one of them might have been in Ireland, and, and it was hard to get hold of them. And uh, that was quite heartbreaking hearing things like that. How long did that deployment run for you? Six and a half months. It was a, a long trip. Yeah, well, then, well, it's a long deployment if you're in one spot doing one thing for such extended hours and you, you know nothing else other than reporting and working and going to sleep and going back and doing it again. What was your second deployment like then? That was quite different. And without a doubt, my professional highlight in anything I've done. I wasn't sure I was going to go back and deploy to Afghanistan, and I, but I remember the moment that I decided to do it. I went back from that first tour. I went back as a, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in a big law firm in Melbourne, and I was settling down for that life. I remember driving into the city. There's a freeway for those of your listeners who know Melbourne, the Eastern Freeway, and we were driving in in early January, and the phone rang, and it was the company commander, and he doesn't normally call me, and I just had this sick feeling something wasn't right. And I answered it and he told me to pull over. And when I pulled over, he told me that Greg Sher had died. And Greg Sher was a very good friend of mine and, and so many others in the unit. And I know at that time they were talking about putting a two-company uh, battle group ready to deploy at the end of the year, like the one that Greg was in from one company. And I wasn't sure if I was going to go because I had been 
But I just said to my wife then, I've got to go. And, and it wasn't a sense of revenge or anything. It was just a, of just, you didn't want to be there on that end of the call ever again. I didn't want to be back here hearing a call. I thought if at the end of the year, two company soldiers are facing that risk, I'd like to be there helping them. And especially the things that I learned from that first tour. Later that day, I said, Look, I want to be one of the platoon commanders too. So there was two platoons and the other platoon commander was a, a very good friend of mine. So from then on, we signed up to six months of full-time training, very intense, lots of exercises around the country. We all went to Perth to finish our close quarter battle training. Uh, we did urban operations. We did exercises up in the snow in Victoria because it was going to be cold. And then we went to South Australia. It was a really well-resourced six months and we did some other courses in between. And then myself and the other platoon commander and company commander, we went a month earlier than the rest of the company so we could do a counterinsurgency course, a leader's course in Kabul before continuing on with uh, the tour. you got to say one thing about the army, the training's pretty good. It's very good. And when you think back, it's for me that the hardest, most challenging things are in training. We had a, a great company commander and a commanding officer over there they trusted us, but they tested us. So I remember being on my feet, being asked to give very quick orders in high stress, time limitations. I remember thinking, I've never been under that stress on my feet in a court before. And it was great. And we needed to do that in training so that when it happened in Afghanistan, which it did, it was familiar to you. When you finished your first deployment, you came home and you were home for roughly how long? About six months. Uh, went on a holiday to America with uh, my wife and some friends, um, but then came back to work in, in a law in that first deployment. And you then say yes to the second deployment, six months of, of training here, and then you're deployed one month ahead of your troops? That's right. So you've completed that bit of extra work in Kabul and your troops arrive. What happens? So this sense of excitement, because they're not just my platoon, that they're genuinely my friends. And uh, that was in a professional sense, but just this excitement that we were there and we were there as a unit and a subunit. So the first thing we did was you do a nursery patrol with the commando unit that was leaving. And they were very generous in taking us around, showing what worked, what didn't work, showing us the areas and the relationship they had with the helicopter pilots, how the vehicles worked. And that nursery patrol, which again, a lot of you other people in this chair have told you about. That's a very important part of the handover. And uh, But after that, we, we felt like we were ready to go. And what part of Afghanistan are you working in? All over the place, mostly in regional command south. So we probably spent most of our time in Kandahar. Uh, we did a significant operation up and down the border of Helmand and Kandahar, but also in just about every part of Uruzgan. When I look back on that tour, we spent a significant amount of time outside the wire. It was, for me, 70 or 80% of the time was outside the base and wasn't really inside the base. We did some helicopter operations, but when the weather blew in, it was vehicles that guaranteed you got there and did the job. So if you're spending most of your time out in the field, how long was that second deployment? That second one was probably five and a half months by the time it was done. I came back a little bit earlier so I could start my work as a barrister. So reflecting on that, you said yourself it was probably a highlight of your military career. What were the high points of that deployment? The high point was, the high points really, were this sense of unity in the mission. I often think that being a commander in special forces is easier than it would be in a conventional unit because you just know this level of trust and competence and investment in the mission. What we did was, which other units have done, is we, we broke up mission planning and I was a platoon commander but also the lead mission planner. So we'd break up teams who would do components of the mission planning. For example, we had a... Um, a team that was full of engineers, snipers, and an armoured corps officer. And their job was to get us to the destination and back. 
And, and that's one of the most important and high risk things you do. And, and they just did a superb job. And that just plugged into the orders. I never had to question what they did. They made sure we went in and out a different way. And one of them was right next to Michael Fussell when he had died, stepping on an IED. And, and, and his personal mission was to try and make sure that never happened again. So getting in and out of somewhere for him was the most important thing we could do. Did you have many instances of losing guys? We didn't. We were lucky. We had a lot of close calls. And I often give the example, we had a rescue dog, one of many, which the engineers had called Sean. And she personally found over 20 IEDs that we would have stepped on or driven off. And uh, just a beautiful dog. And the other dogs did the same and the engineers did the same. And lots of close calls, quite a few contacts, you know, you're seeing them pop around you. But, um, you know, we were lucky. And, and, and I'm so thankful that we, that we did have that luck on our tour. Just following your luck, did you get into any major firefights? We had a few, particularly in Kandahar and if not far from Shawali Kot, which is very famous now with what happened later in 2010. But we didn't quite get as far into the area where, where, where that particular incident occurred. But there were several days we were in significant contact from a distance and it just fighting all the way in, fighting all the way out. Uh, but it was primarily snipers and mortars and heavy weapons and air assets that were en engaging the enemy. Each mission was different. The particular mission there was a disrupt mission in an area of known Taliban stronghold. And we also knew that part of our mission then was to provide a pathway and fact-finding for future operations because this was an area of concern and concentration for the SOTGs and that happened in the tour afterwards and the tour after that. So it was certainly an area that needed attention and this was just the start of that sort of probing missions. Keith, was there much opportunity to try and sort of win hearts and minds in any of your work? Significantly. I think if you look back on the timeline of the commanders in Afghanistan, uh, different commanders at the four-star NATO level brought a different perspective. I was there in that tour when General McChrystal was in charge and he had visited the base early on. And he really believed in the hearts and minds campaign and there was no date for withdrawal, which is critical to that succeeding. And our commanding officer believed in the Hearts and Minds campaign. So he wanted to make sure we took the risks of doing things by day, meeting people, talking to people and learning from them. And when I look back, they were the highlights for me and many others on that tour. It sounds simple, but a meeting with people, but a meeting with people involved a lot of planning, a lot of risk. And but we learned so much more than you ever would if you were just doing night raids. And I think we were able to contribute to the mission in a really important way. And I'm very proud of the work that we did then. What were your interpreters like? They were outstanding. Everyone had their favourite interpreter. Uh, there was one who was training as a doctor in New York, and so he would always go with the medics. There was another one called Sal who ran a restaurant in New York, and so everyone wanted Sal, but he wasn't very fit, so he didn't want to take him out on a target, but he was usually with the headquarters vehicle. But in winter, he'd buy some local food, he'd cook up some naan bread, and you'd be giving orders surrounded by this hot pot stew. And so Sal was very, very important. But the interpreters were critical. You just couldn't do your job without it. So an example would be I had a shura down on the border of Helmand and Kandahar in an area where the American brigade had lost significant numbers and they'd retreated into their forward operating bases. And we were given the mission to go out and talk to people in a way that hadn't been done by that brigade. And it was through the interpreters I was able to communicate with them over several hours and learn and talk to them. But on the other side, you had another interpreter telling you, you know, what people were saying in the hills, which we learnt were their children 
and grandchildren who had been given money by drug dealers. Now, we didn't know that from an intelligence report. You only learn that by being on the ground, hearing them say it and having it reinforced in your other ear from the interpreter listening to their radio communications. Keith, what I found from my own time is what kept you together with the hard training with the guys were often the very funny things that would happen. Do you remember any particular incidents, perhaps, when you were on one of your deployments? Well, often the funniest things are usually the things that need to be censored so that, you know, soldiers have quite a rude sense of humour, and my friends certainly did. But there's something that happened on that second tour that, that was a little bit funny but left a lasting lesson for me. We were sent in and to an area that had expelled the Taliban themselves, uh, some mullahs, had been killed in a, in a mosque, and that was a red line for that community, and they were sick of the Taliban and drove them out themselves. Our mission was to go and speak to them, find out how they did it, learn the lessons, and maybe we could pass those on to other villages. So we were given 10 water pumps to give to this village, and for those of your listeners who don't know Afghanistan, a water pump is a really valuable asset. It takes water to an area that could be irrigated. So these were very heavy things, about 50, 60 kilos each. So we had 10, and we went in in the Bushmasters to the edge of this mountain range, and we couldn't take the Bushmasters any further. So we paid for some donkeys to have a water pump on the back of each donkey, and it was a beautiful image seeing these donkeys go up and over the mountains, made it to the village, had this huge shura that went for many hours. And when we had the big reveal for the gift, the village elder said, I won't take it. I'm very grateful for the gift. You don't have enough for everyone. and I'm not asking you for everyone because there was 1,500 people in this area. We're holding this community together by a thread and I could take it. I could give it to my brother. I could give it to my cousin and my neighbor. But the person down the road or up the valley would be jealous of me. And jealousy is a very powerful thing that can tear us apart. So thank you very much, but we we won't take any. And we continued with the meeting and then eventually left with the donkeys and the water pumps up over the valley. And for anyone who's given a gift that hasn't been accepted, you're at first disappointed. But then we all spoke and chatted about it, about how what a really smart thing he did. He understands his community. And for anyone who's had brothers or sisters, you know how powerful jealousy can be in tearing families apart. And it certainly can tear villages apart. I walked away from that thinking he's someone who knows his community. He's a leader of his community and he's selfless. And that's a little lesson that I took from him that I'll definitely take into politics. And it's, um, it was just really one of those nice stories. But we, we all love chatting and talking to the donkeys because uh, who doesn't love a donkey? So what did you do with those water pumps? I don't know what happened to them. We gave them back. I often think all of the stuff that was brought into Afghanistan, where is that now? So I'd like to think water pumps have been put to good use. Those donkeys would have been pissed off knowing they had to take them back again. I know, but for, you know, I grew up watching Shrek and uh, so I just kept waiting for the donkey to talk back to me, but it didn't happen. After your second deployment sort of winds up, what uh, was the extraction like? You left first and then your unit then followed you or...? They did. It was all very sudden. That operation in Kandahar I spoke about, that was right near the end. And within a few days, I'd come back, quickly handed my weapon in, and I had agreed with the company commander that I could go back to start my Barrister Readers course, which is a three-month course that you have to do. I had missed the first week, so I was coming in on the second week. So I left on the Wednesday, landed in Tullamarine on the Friday, which is the Melbourne airport, quickly said hello to family and friends and started that course having missed the first week on the Monday. And so my head was really sort of spinning from having been in Kandahar in a contact a week earlier to sitting in a room, having judges and barristers talk about this new profession you're putting your hand up for. I could see that that would be a huge change from where where you had just been. 
it would be very hard to concentrate, I suspect. It was and it wasn't. I never had a time to relax from that tour. So I was sort of had this pent up determination to do well that carried over, but felt this lack of confidence because it had become normal what we were doing in Afghanistan. But what I was doing here with them wasn't normal. So I was quite stressed and nervous about doing a good job there. But the thing that really hit me was this sense of isolation. You'd gone from this team that you'd been training with for six months, deployed with for almost six months, and then I'm back on my own with people who had nothing to do with that. So I missed them straight away and couldn't wait to see them again. So how long did you stay with the legal books before you went back again? Well, I I thought I was done then, and, you know, I've said that before. So I am... I thought, here I am as a barrister. It's what I've always wanted to do. I've been to Afghanistan twice, so I'll stay as a reservist in commandos. I really wanted to help with people who wanted to do selection to try and help that. And I thought I was done. And then in 2014, I had a a trial in the Supreme Court that was coming up. And I got a call saying, do you want to deploy to Afghanistan? It's a bit different. It's a short notice trip with an American task group. And at the time, Iraq was kicking off. So there were lots of people in lots of different places. And it sounded like a great job, but I said, look, I can't, I've got this trial coming up. And then an hour after I said that, I got a call saying the trial had settled. So I called my wife and I said, oh, look, one more time. And she said, oh, okay, do it. Which was a different proposition because we had a two-year-old, my wife was pregnant, but she still, when I explained this to her, she said yes, and that was very generous of her. So I called them back and said, I'm in. And again, a week later, I was coming through Sydney and then found myself in Kabul and then getting on a helicopter to go to Bagram again, on my own, thinking, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I remember standing in Bagram at the base, looking up at the mountains, and it felt like yesterday that I was there. And I was happy to be there, but I also felt this sense of guilt I didn't have before, which was that risking your life is one thing. But now I was risking someone having a father and another baby that was going to risk having a father. And I I felt guilty about that. And I thought back to the fathers who had deployed before and really had you know, appreciated what they went through more. And also, you weren't with your commando buddies. No, we, we had, there was a small element of Australians in this house, but we were all in different jobs. So I went to work every day. And again, it was similar to my first tour, but it was an American task group. And I had an American ID and would walk through into an American headquarters doing an American mission. And uh, that, that was not like any of the others I had been on. So let's describe the difference between our base and the American bases. In a way... Our bases, you know, it's, it's scale, it's a bit different, but it's very similar. You know, there's certain ways you build a base and construct a mess and do the toilets and have the internet and all the other things. So it didn't look much different. But what struck me was the building you'd go to work in where we operated out of. You'd hand in all of your phones and equipment and you walk down this corridor that showed September 11 images on the plasma screen. And then you turn left down the other corridor and there's just rows of their dead special forces soldiers from that task group. So you went to work every day being reminded of September 11 and being reminded of the lives that have fallen. And, and that sunk in your mind every day for them and for me of why you were going to work. How did you find working with the Americans? Did you find their level of professionalism satisfactory? Definitely. We're all human and there's a bell curve of people, but there were people from all over the special forces community there. And um, I made some fantastic friends, met people from states you wouldn't normally meet. And just that sense of responsibility that it's on them. So for us in Afghanistan, we were a small part of a big picture. They are the big picture. So there's no one else. So the missions and tasks they're given, it's on them. And you can just see that sense of purpose 
and seriousness. So it wasn't quite the sense of humour that you get in an Australian task group, but you can sort of understand why they don't have it. But um, very friendly people. So the work you were doing with them, they're American units that are going out in the field. I mean, were they doing similar work to what you'd been doing with the commandos? Like other people who've been on your show, there's parts about their task groups you, you can't say, but it's not a secret to know that a huge part of the work is drone work and there are also field elements that go out. So they would primarily work on drones, but also have humans that would go out to pick something up or kill or capture someone. But you would have, I imagine, more resources, obviously, in the American base that you could call on. So were you involved in the deployment of those? I was part of the operations centre that did that. So a significant level of resources at their disposal, almost infinite compared to us. So many more plasma screens on the TV than we would have had in our first headquarters. I suppose everyone we interview, every Aussie, when they reflect on when they're introduced to the main show being the Americans, it's just so massive. and We all feel the comfort of them being on our side. That's right. By 2014, we had been there for a long time. And, you know, obviously we're coming up to that 2021 date, but it felt like a long time then. And you know, it's been seven years since I was on that trip. Was that six months roughly? No, it was quite short. So I was the last Australian to do that job. So we also had a logistics task at the end to, to say goodbye and thank you and pull out. There was other Australians in Bagram doing different jobs and we got together and shut down the house and there was a lot of history with that house because the house originally was the headquarters for the very first SOTGs way back in the early days and had little graffiti of people's names who'd been there and and you recognise some of those names and uh, so there was a sense of history in that building that we said goodbye to on, on behalf of many others that had been through it. Well, I suppose for Sarah it would have been easier to sell that trip from the perspective that you weren't a platoon commander in the field, that you are more so at head office, part of a team, directing work. And that was my sales pitch and it worked. So yeah, um, And a bit yeah, shorter. Yeah, that's right. Been. So back in 2010, you were actually called as a barrister to the Victorian bar. That's right. And, and they, it's an old-fashioned term to say call to the bar. In the end, it's, it's on you to go. No one actually taps you to say come to the bar, but it's, it's an old-fashioned way of saying it. And you were similarly honoured in the Australia Day Honours in 2011. What was that concerning? That was related to the second tour as a platoon commander. And and again, that was a significant honour given to me. But I never for a second believed that that was something I did that was special. It was just an acknowledgement for the platoon. And I was the lucky guy that was the head of the platoon. But equally, the other platoon commander, who's not only a friend of mine, but a mentor and one of the best officers I've ever worked with, I'd like to think that was for him too, because there was nothing I did that he didn't do or better. It was an amazing team effort. There was no rivalry. And I was a lucky guy who was left standing getting something. So Keith, having done your three missions, I mean, over your time of being abroad, being back home, how have you found the overlap between your legal career and the military work? They were mostly separate. They were completely distinct things. As you noted, I wasn't a legal officer, but once they did overlap. So in 2010, I was given a brief as a junior barrister to a senior Sydney barrister, David McClure, who is now a senior counsel, as acting for some commandos who were charged with serious war crimes-related offences. It wasn't an actual war crimes charges. They were charged quite controversially with domestic offences. So they were charged with the deaths of women and children who had been killed in a raid. Uh, Grenades were used and and they were killed. And that was in 2009. So it took a year for the investigation. So with David McClure as the lead barrister, I was the junior barrister. We acted for the team commander, who was a commando. And that took about a year, almost full time, with several hearings. And it finished with the charges being dismissed as being wrong in law. 
that would have been a good role for you because A, you've got the legal background, B, you've got the military background. Hence, probably you were quite the right person to help in that case. Obviously, that's quite a topical issue and it's ongoing with current inquiries. So you're acting for the ex-commandos who, as you've found, were, were wrongly accused. How did you find they handled the situation? It was really interesting watching them because I got to know and like them really well. And obviously that's something that a lot of Special Forces veterans are sitting around waiting to start that process. And it's not easy. And I watched them go through that and you feel like you're on your own. You feel like your only friend is your lawyer and your barrister. And it's a really important relationship. And, and I've been asked by some about who are potentially about to start that process. And the most important decision they have to make is who their legal team is. That's like you're the person next to you in a firefight. And that's the person who will be standing there with you in the darkest of times. And there will be some really dark times. And it's not easy. It's not easy on the families. It's not easy on the extended family. And so I hope in the process that's about to start, defence really makes sure that all of the support is available to anyone who's accused and charged with one of these war crimes. You would not be the only guy that's a legal guy and a military guy and, and a military guy with special forces experience. But if I was one of those guys that was accused, it would give me great comfort being an ex-commando, having another ex-commando or ex-special forces uh, guy helping me so I could see that your representation in your case would have been very comforting you know, for your clients. I think it helped, but looking back on what led to them not being acquitted, but the charges being dismissed and what's ahead of some of the soldiers that are facing potential charges. The most important thing is the most competent barrister you can find in the country of criminal law. And I'd like to think I really value added to that trial. But in the end, it was the advocacy and research of, in that instance, David McClure, who's one of the best barristers I've ever worked for. Um, but there's many other outstanding barristers. It's a nice to have if they know the military, but first and foremost, I would be advising anyone, not that I can give advice on, on this podcast, but it would be a good idea to make sure the person really knows their law is a really good advocate and you trust them to not miss a beat when it comes to defending you against a prosecution. Keith, how did you find coming home from war each time? It's a surreal experience. You have a lot of time on the various flights and airports to just think, listen to music, read a newspaper, um, send an email if you can. But in the end, you're on your own. You're on a civilian flight for me from Sydney to Melbourne and you're coming out with everyone else who's come back on a business flight. And I remember I met a partner of a law firm I used to work for from King and Wood Mallison's. And I said, oh, hello. And he said, oh, hi, Keith. I said, oh, have you been, what have you been up to? And he was telling me his story about some corporate deal he'd just worked on. And it was interesting. And he said, what have you been doing? And I said, oh, I've just come back from Afghanistan. And his face dropped and he said, I'm so sorry, here I am talking about what I'm doing and you've just done that. He goes, I don't know what to say. And I said, no, tell me more. I, I, I want to hear more about that. I want to hear something different. And that really is interesting what you're saying. And, but you're otherwise, you're just back in anyone else landing at Melbourne Airport, which I actually didn't mind. Let's now talk about you entering into politics because you've been endorsed by the Liberal Party as the candidate for Menzies, so congratulations. And um, you've got a uh, federal election to win next time it's called. How did you suddenly go from legal to military and now into politics? The short answer is there was nothing sudden about it. So in that first week at Melbourne University when I saw that Green Army tent, I also saw a table for the Liberal Club. 
And I didn't know that I was really a liberal. I, having come from Ireland, people assume, you know, you should join the Labour Party. And I went to a public school, you should, you're working class, you should head down that path. And people make assumptions about you. But all of us learn about ourselves and our politics. And some things didn't quite sit with me about, you know, what my dad's business went through in the recession of the early 90s. The political correctness, that was, I thought, quite extreme then. It's much more extreme now on yeah, campus. Sure. So that drove me to find some people who thought, like I did. And I'd heard about the Liberal Club, so I signed up. And then they said, oh, you should join the party. And so I signed up to the party. And uh, that was 25 years ago. And over time, I thought that that is one of the most effective ways to serve your country and your community, uh, for good or for bad. And I I thought one day I would put my hand up. And um, it's not an easy process for anyone who's been through a pre-selection in a major political party. It is is as grueling as a special forces election, but in a different way. And it should be grueling because the honour that you're given by that party is significant and you need to be tested in that process to show that you can represent the party and people afterwards. So which is the particular seat that you're um, pre-selected for now? So the seat of Menzies is named after former Prime Minister Robert Menzies. It's to the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Two-thirds of it is suburban and then one-third is sort of green wedge areas of Warren Dyke and Wonga Park where people live on half acre and one, one acre blocks. It's got the Yarra River to the northern boundary. It did have the eastern freeway to the southern boundary, but it's now pushed further south. It's got a diverse background of people. There's many migrants that have come to Australia over several decades living there. Uh, people have built businesses, very proud of what they've done, proud of their community. And it's just, it's just a lovely sample of Melbourne. And if I was given the honour of being their representative, uh, I could think of no greater privilege than to be their advocate. And how many people are in your electorate? On the census, it's about 130,000, so 60,000 households. So a lot of people and communicating with them. You have to use everything at your disposal from putting things in letterboxes, door knocking, social media is very important. Some of them might be listening to this. There's lots of different ways to communicate with people, but but that's my task that I've started now. Maybe you might need some of your Afghan interpreters. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And um, But so far, I'm speaking with everyone in a way I understand and they understand. People would ask you, you know, what are you going to do there, Keith, to make a difference? I think the first task, and it will be I think a parliamentarian's task forever is to be the best representative you can be. And you can only do that if you get out of your office and speak to people and listen to them. So I'm spending a lot of time listening and learning right now. And each day is different. There's a different phone call or a meeting. Um, You go to a sporting ground and you hear about things that are of concern to them, a football oval that's not draining properly or a road project that's going to completely change the character of a neighbourhood, an art gallery that wants to be renovated, uh, you know, an Italian club that needs to be fixed up. There's lots of different things that you only learn by getting out on the ground. And that's something I learned in Afghanistan. Your perspective is only truly accurate on the ground, talking to people. You would no doubt, like every electorate, have veterans. I could see you being of a lot of service to a number of your people in that capacity as well. It's an area I, I, I didn't come into politics for or wear as a badge, but I'm I'm more than happy to step up in that way, particularly in Victoria. There are many veterans who are in the Commonwealth Parliament from around Australia, but at the moment there's none from Victoria. But there's a lot of veterans who live in Victoria. And even though I'm a veteran myself, there's so many things I don't know. I don't know what it's like to go through the process of DVA, so I'm learning. I I don't know what it's like to have that transition of 15 years full-time into a civilian life, but I'm learning. So like with the electorate, I'm trying to learn from the veteran community because it's a diverse community. Politics are different. 
views are different, there's different groups, there's different arguments. So listening to them is, is a task I'm happy to embrace and I've started now. We wish you all the best. And I think having had the military experience, you will gain a lot of respect from people because you've already put your life on the line to serve your country. And I hope you get to serve it well if you're given the opportunity. If we look at your military life, how do you reflect on it today? It's a huge part of who I am. And from walking into that tent in that old week at Melbourne Uni, I never thought it would be, but it helped me discover who I am. All of us often get assumed that we can do something. And what I love about the military and special forces is those assumptions don't matter. It's on you to put your hand up and to find out yourself if you can do something. And what I realized through the military is there's very little we can't do, all of us. It's on you to find out. And if someone tells you you can't do something, go find out yourself. Don't ever listen to the naysayers or someone who wants to pigeonhole you. All of us are unique in our own individuality. And that means we're all capable of different things. And the military allowed me to see who I am, test myself and test myself in really stressful situations. And, and I surprised myself in what that allowed me to do and how I was able to step up to it. Keith, there's obviously a lot happening at the moment, politically speaking, for veterans and their families in Australia. Good luck in representing the interests of both your electorate and the veteran community. Before we sign off today, I was just wondering if there was anything more that you would like to say to us or indeed people who you might try to represent. What I'd like to say to you is on Anzac Day, I went around to the community RSLs and normally I spend time at my base in Williamstown or I had had Anzac Days overseas and they're very special. This was my first time out in the community and so many people you meet have had relatives or grandfathers or fathers that have served and almost to a person they say the same thing. He never talked about it. He never told me what he did and I wish he did. And I think what you're doing here with this podcast of recording this oral history, I think that's in, an important generational change in telling stories because you see the sense of sadness that those stories often weren't passed on and I think we need to record them and pass them on and it's a credit to you and Alex what you're doing. Keith it's our pleasure to talk to you today we would like to thank you for your time but in particular thank you for your service thank you for doing tour after tour after tour and we really wish you well in your next tour and hoping you are successful in that capacity. Good luck to you and thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. I'm Angus Horden and you've been listening to Life on the Line. We have many more podcasts with stories related to today's episode. To hear more about the fate of Sean McCarthy in Season 4, listen to Number 68, Harry Moffat, Volume 2. The leader is there to hold the light in the dark, to show the way forward. For more about the Battle of Shawali Kot from the perspective of the Commandos, listen to Number 92, Dean Parkinson, Volume 2. We got hit from four sides all at once. Deafening. And Number 100, Gary Wilson. In the three months I'd lost half my body weight, I was below 50 kilos and this nurse put me back in bed. Jess, Miss Wilson, you're in a helicopter crash. For action-packed stories of serving in Afghanistan with US Special Forces, in Season 3, listen to number 54, H Volume 2. Only seconds ago, braced yourself mentally that you know, you're about to die. You've accepted that. And in Season 4, number 54, H Volume 4. You've got fucking hours and your whole call sign's going to be dead. So you either get someone in here or get us out of here. And for another story of a commando who went to the law, listen to number 44, Mick Bainbridge.
you know, I was scared to put my hand up and ask for help. And when I did, I was isolated, immediately told to go home and fuck off because they wanted no one else to get crook. And for more commentary on war crimes from a lawyer who is studying the issue intently, you can watch on YouTube our second episode of Life After Service with Glenn Kolomitz. You need to have that, um, that transition piece at least somewhere in the back of your mind. I, I think you, you can't really be in defence for the long haul, which I, which I was, um, not having an exit strategy. It sounds negative, but not having a, a you know, thought about what you're going to do when you do get out. For more great stories, follow us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTLpod and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>